Happy birthday, dear podcast. Did you know that the expats celebrated its first birthday on June 16th? It's true. We've been on the air and a part of your lives for one full year. We're actually just about the same age as Princess Charlotte, daughter to the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. But like any good Canadian, we didn't call too much attention to our birthday. And of course, of course, gifts are not necessary. Now, my invocation of the royal family was deliberate because we have a very special show for you today, one that covers a topic that some Canadians might not have been entirely familiar with until just last week, Brexit, the United Kingdom leaving the European Union. UK citizens voted in a referendum last week. They were asked to vote on whether or not the UK should remain a part of the EU. Polling numbers right up to the date of the vote all indicated that it was much too close to call. And yet, on Friday morning as the sun rose on the United Kingdom, the gravity of that vote literally dawned on people. Have the British made a huge mistake? To answer that question, we're traveling to Oxford to chat with a Canadian who actually studies referenda on the expats. Welcome to the Expats. I'm your host, Adam Rosenhart, based out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I feel like it's rare to be able to observe history, at least those significant historical events. And maybe it's just that not much of it happens here at the Expats home base. The same is not true for today's guest. She had the opportunity to observe the UK's referendum firsthand, and after about six years of living in the UK, Leah Trueblood has some pretty good insight on the British people. Yeah, six years in October. I came initially to do a, a law degree at the London School of Economics in London. And then I moved to Oxford in 2013 to do a doctorate in the philosophy of law. So to become a fake a fake lawyer, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was clear real law was not going not gonna to happen. So, And, uh, and is, is the UK a good place to study this sort of thing? Is an excellent place to study this sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. So I, I joke, but it is a really incredible place to do what I do for lots of reasons. But the main reason is that everyone in law school does legal theory. Um, so it's a much bigger, it's a much bigger deal than it is in in Canada. So that was that was part of the part of the rationale. And does do any of your studies involve um, politics at all? Yeah, yeah. So my thesis is partially about uh, referendums. So, you know, I think if academics have become too relevant, something has gone wrong. People, <laughs> you know, I think legal philosophers are like dermatologists. They shouldn't do much good, but they also shouldn't do much harm. But there's a, you know, there's a real danger that uh, we've become way too relevant, <laughs> uh, given everything that's happened in the last week. So yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that because it's something the whole planet is talking about. Mm-hmm. And this this started some months ago, right? There was this campaign that begun to talk about extricating the United Kingdom from the European Union. That's right. So David Cameron, uh, when he ran in the general election in 2015, promised a referendum 
on European Union membership largely to appease the right of the Conservative Party. But this has been an issue in the Conservative Party since, you know, before Margaret Thatcher. There have been a, a constituency, now not just in Conservatives, but initially it was, it was uh, well, it was Labour and then it was Conservative, that didn't want to be governed by Europe. They didn't want to be told what to do. And uh, yeah, David Cameron tried tried to appease it, and he gambled, and he lost pretty spectacularly. So, what, tell me a little bit about the lead up to the, to the big vote, because, I mean, from my perspective here in Canada, we were hearing a little bit about it. Suddenly, mm-hmm. this term Brexit became, uh, you know, commonplace in a way. Um, what was the feeling and sentiment where you're living uh, from people about about the European Union? It's a great question. And I think it's a great question because in, a, in some ways it's a bit hard to tell. So London, Oxford, Cambridge, Bristol, Edinburgh, you know, I think one of the things the referendum has demonstrated is just how deeply the countries divided. So there were clearly different conversations going on that weren't talking to each other. Um, and so it was so, I think, obvious to people in London or Oxford where I live now that this is a good thing. Uh, that they voted overwhelmingly uh, to remain. So I think there was a, a, a sense of sort of obvious, you know, this is, this is so self-evidently true, how can we argue about it? Uh, and then there was also a bit of complacency. But I think part of the challenge is, as I was saying before, this is a long-standing tension in British politics. So the, the arguments have been exactly the same for 28 years. So there was a sense of, um, you know, there's obviously new spins on the arguments, but there was a sense of, I don't know if a futility or people had picked sides. I don't think a lot of people changed their minds about the arguments themselves. They might have changed their mind about voting. So I think even a lot of people who voted to remain are Eurosceptic. They don't think Europe's working. They're really hesitant about Europe, but um, overcame that to, to stay in the European Union. But I think the other thing that's com- defined the conversation about the campaign, in addition to these different conversations is the, the level of misinformation and the quality of debate has been just shockingly low. Mm-hmm. Um, the lying on both sides, I don't think it's equally bad. I think the Leave campaign was far worse, but Remain was bad too. But part of the challenge of that is it's just difficult to say if people say something like, well, will I be worse off if we leave the European Union? That's obviously true, but it's hard to put a number on it. It's hard to say, well, you'll be, you know, the, the, the Remain campaign made up a number but by making up a number, it almost made it worse. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it seems like it's kind of actually weird to quantify the feeling because mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the the news uh, coverage is about almost like a sense that uh, the UK isn't as great as it used to be because of its uh, participation in the EU. And now now we're hearing, in fact, it's going to be worse. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Um, you've got this real since, you know, I, I saw it on the cover of a newspaper today, Make Britain Great Again, where have we heard that before? You know? yeah. <laughs> where, are we, where are we hearing right now that before? But I think the people who voted for the UK to remain, or to leave rather, are overwhelmingly older, white, English, and Welsh. And by that I mean not Scottish or from Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And so those folks, I think, have a, a particular image of what it is to be English, uh, to be to be what they would say is British, but I think it it sometimes is con- conflated with Englishness. 
And, you know, and the people, the, the folks in London, as I say, are Oxford or Cambridge. It's like a different Edinburgh. It's like a different world. And what it means to be British, as you say, is different. So they do feel European. So mm -hmm. they feel that part of their identity has been taken away against their will. But that's basically how UKIP and, you know, have felt for the past, you know, 28 years. Yeah. Uh, or 41 years, I guess. Um, so... Yeah, yeah, it's a very, it's an incredibly odd time. It's as close as the British get to a revolution. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's uh, a polite revolution, <laughs> almost. You know, it's interesting that you you brought up the make make England or make the UK great again. Obviously, we're hearing precisely the same rhetoric coming out of the United States. In your opinion, uh, having been there for six years, can the UK ever reclaim the so-called greatness it had when it was, you know, this this British empire? Is that time over it's a great question i mean so i think it will never have i think that kind of influence on the world that it did before world war ii it will mm -hmm. never it'll never be like that uh i think it it was before thursday hugely influential in say things like the financial services sector i think in lots of ways london was you know london would certainly say that it was one of the great capitals of the world one of the great the great cities of the world and i i think by closing themselves off they've really endangered the influence that they have but they definitely that you you've nailed it this is definitely the rhetoric people said something like well we're the fifth largest economy in the world you know we can go it alone and the the leave campaign said believe in britain <laughs> you know they said and then if if people said well we should remain they said well you're talking down britain you don't believe that we could do it you don't believe we could better off alone so it almost became a, an argument about patriotism unfortunately yeah and who is more patriotic which is never a good <laughs> you know no um way to answer a, a, a question of this nature well and there have been there have been some really interesting comments from people online who have said things like you know when was the last time a sort of a deflated electorate um, voted for greatness in Europe. I mean, we mm -hmm. all remember what that was yeah. like. And I, I'm not suggesting yeah. that something like that is is happening again, but we do seem to have this almost, uh, you know, if you look at the difference between the age groups and how they voted, it's almost mm -hmm. like a culture war, a class war. It absolutely is like, it is like that. It definitely is like that. And that's one of the things as a Canadian that surprised me the most, especially when I first came to the UK, is that the divisions are so deep between, especially in schooling, I think. Schooling is where this really kicks off. That There's a real divide between people who go to state school and people who go to pub, what, what they call public, or which are what we would call private schools or independent schools. Mm -hmm. And I think... You know, there's a it's two it's two totally different worlds, and that was part of the problem. So, Remain were saying, well, if you if you vote to leave the European Union, you can't travel there for free. You know, you'll get your mobile roaming, your cell phones roaming charges will go higher. Well, they would say, well, we don't have the money to do, you know, to do it anyway. Yeah. The the art, people didn't see themselves represented by, and they didn't see themselves serving. Although crucially, you now see in Cornwall, Yorkshire, Wales hundreds of millions of pounds of European money goes into those regions and they're now saying, well, we want to keep that money even though we're leaving the EU. <laughs> just, so they want to have their cake and eat it too. They absolutely do. And one of the things that frustrates me the most about the British is they had an incredible deal. They didn't have to be in the euro. They weren't in Schengen. You know, they had, um, they had a rebate that Margaret Thatcher negotiated. So the idea that they would ever get a better deal 
Um, I mean, I think the European Union should be reformed, but I mean, this is like trying to fix a, a watch with a hammer. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's absurd. So, so the EU is not without its problems, but you sort of have to attack them one by one, not just bail wholesale. I totally agree. You know, to me, this represents sixty-five years of compromise and diplomacy that was really, you know, thrown out the window. It has huge ramifications for, you know, we have a French election and I think and a German election within the next 12 months, something like that, certainly very soon. And it, it really endangers the whole European project. I mean, I think the UK, the EU rather, you know, of course it could be demo more democratic. I think they massively overplayed their hands sometimes in terms of thinking, you know, going beyond the economic arguments to having anthems and flags and wanting people to feel like European citizens. I think sometimes they push that too far too fast. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, there's been peace in Europe, <laughs> which was the, whole, was the whole aim. And to endanger that, especially the peace process in Northern Ireland. So Sinn Féin are now calling for a, a referendum on the unity of Ireland. You know, Nicola Sturgeon has said that she's introducing legislation for a second Scottish referendum. So it's hard not to see this as the beginning of the end of the United Kingdom as we as we know it. Yeah. What what are your your friends there, you know, living near you thinking and feeling? I mean, have you heard anyone say maybe it's time to move to Canada? Yeah, definitely. For sure. For sure. And you've seen a lot of um, people in Northern Ireland who can apply because of the Good Friday Agreement. They can apply for Irish passports, which are still European Union passports, and they've run out of form. They've maxed out their... Uh, but you definitely see people say, I talked to a friend from Canada who lives in London today, and they just had a baby, and they said, well, we want to get her a Canadian passport as soon as we can. We want to leave our, our options open, mm -hmm. and my partner is British, and he says, you know, he never... He doesn't feel like it's his country anymore, and I have a friend uh, who works in London who's Romanian who was yelled at to go home. You know, it's a, it feels like a, a totally different world. Wow, that's bizarre. Um, overnight. Yeah. Now, yeah. You, you say you study referenda. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so was this a <laughs> useful research for you? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, so I think a lot about, in my general research, I think about how people think about their obligations or don't as members of communities. Mm -hmm. And I think referendums are very bad ways to do that because political questions are not binary. They're not of this form. And they, I mean, they can spark debates, but I don't think these debates are usually, you know, they're not very meaningful because the issues can't be disambiguated. So it sounds like based on the polling, people voted in this referendum overwhelmingly because of immigration. And it became also, but it became a proxy for all kinds of, all kinds of, um, of other issues of dissatisfaction with the government. So they said people in the northeast of England who hadn't voted since 1983 with Margaret Thatcher voted to punish the bankers for 2008. Well, the European Union was the best hope of you know, <laughs> regulating the bank. It has nothing to do with it. So it can conflate all kinds of issues. Now, that isn't to say I don't think the people should be asked. So there's this wonderful instance in British Columbia of the British Columbia Citizens Assembly where people were picked uh, by lot. And then they were asked to come up with a compromise about um, reforming the electoral system. So I have no problem with the people being asked. But I, I think, and I think that's important for big constitutional questions. But I think if referendums are going to be used, they have to be 
extremely heavily regulated people should be brought in to facilitate compromises through drawing people by lots, which is actually what happened in ancient Greece. It's not like everybody voted on everything all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I think something like in say say Scotland, there was a with Scottish referendum. There was a white paper. The Scottish government said. What would happen, they tried to anticipate all the answers to these questions. So in that way, it was a bit better. It was a bit more structured. But here, as we're seeing now, there was no plan. There was no, um, there was no sense of what the question was even answering, what the question meant. And I think this is an example, not of a great exercise of democracy, but a, a really awful exercise of democracy. So there's a, there's a couple different things at play, which is that you're, you're saying the, the question, which in an election, defining the question... Uh, is ultimately your goal. You want to be able to define the question and provide mm-hmm. the answer, right? Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. And then we mm-hmm. also had the, the, something that you said about um, the Scottish government releasing a white paper. There seems to be this really deep uh, sentiment that we cannot trust experts, we cannot trust mm-hmm. the media, and mm-hmm. we and I don't know who people are listening to now, but, you know... Um, the 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 side that wanted to leave came out the following day and said all that money we said you would save with the national health service was actually not true so tell me a little bit about maybe um how people were informed in this campaign and and to what degree are the the british people experiencing buyer's remorse right now great question yeah i think that's massively massively part of it i think the most shocking thing i've heard in ages as Michael Gove saying that people are sick of experts. I mean, I think, I think a lot of this comes back to 2008 again. So for lots of reasons, the UK was hit a lot harder than Canada. So I think it's hard for, well, it was hard for me when I came here to understand how significant that moment was because the financial services sector is so central too. Um, and there was this real sense that bankers got away with it, which is just to say, I think that exacerbated this class divide this sense that there's rich people and they're making all this money at our expense. Mm-hmm. They live in this other world. And I think there was never a sense that those people were punished. There was never a sense of consequences, even though there was consequences in, you know, the sorts of places that voted to leave here. And so I think as we were talking about earlier, that class divide, I think that that really runs along the strands of experts. So as you said earlier, the people who voted to remain are largely people who are younger, went to university, richer. And I think expertise is one manifestation of this us and them um, dichotomy. But I think it was most clearly seen in 2008 that they say, well, if all these economists couldn't predict the financial crisis, if they all said we should go into the euro, apart from Gordon Brown, you know, Blair would have taken them into the probably into the euro had Brown not blocked it. I think there's a sense that the experts don't really know what they're doing. They're the ones making money and we're, we're not mm-hmm. and we're being had. And it's, uh, but I think partly it's also a post-fact political era that people can say things. So Gove, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, the two of the leaders of the Leave campaign, were both former journalists and they really know how to manipulate the media. Yeah, uh, Boris Johnson at the end of the debate on Wednesday on the BBC said it will be our Independence Day. He made this extremely complicated, you know, not extremely complicated, an issue of unfathomable complexity. He turned it into, you know, a slogan on a sticker. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and when people are thinking emotively, then they're not listening to experts. Yeah, so as in my world, which is advertising, 
people aren't making rational decisions. They are voting mm-hmm. with their hearts. Mm-hmm. And and so were you getting a sense? I mean, obviously, a lot of the, the folks that you know and hang out with are are younger and they're more educated. So they probably voted to, to remain. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. did you have you gotten a sense from any other people in your circles or, or close to you that, man, we've made a huge mistake um, you know, it's interesting. I did, there's definitely narratives of that in the media that I read. That there's definitely, you hear um, people saying, well, we never really thought that we would. The consequences are so much, are so much worse. And I, I was reading that, maybe you saw this too, that something like a third of people who'd committed to vote leave didn't think their ballots would be counted. They thought MI5 was going to rub up the, you know, you're supposed to bring a pen so that the government couldn't... Um, rub out your vote oh my gosh There's, you know the distrust in institutions is unbelievable yeah um you know so i just saw my my boyfriend's family and they all they're all people who vote to leave and i think i don't think they have remorse they have this very british sense that well this is or what they see as a British sense which is well we just have to make the best of it i mean in oxford there's definitely a sense they're signing a petition the Lib Dems are now, the Liberal Democrats as a party are now situating themselves as the party of trying to remain in Europe. It sounds like there'll be people who say, it sounds like what'll happen next is that um, there'll be a Conservative Party leadership contest and then there'll be, so the new Prime Minister will be elected by 112,000 members of the Conservative Party and then there'll be a group of people who say, well, this isn't very democratic. We need a general election mm-hmm. before we negotiate. And I think the thought would be that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, will be ousted and they'll try to... Um, so I think there's definitely a massive movement, not only among... You're right. It's not only among people who voted Remain, who were a bit Eurosceptic. They wanted to say, you know, F you to Europe. They don't, they don't really like them. But I think they, they never really thought... And indeed, I don't think Go, Boris, Go, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove really thought that they would win. And my friends um, who work in the government suggest that, that they never really thought that they would win. Uh, they just wanted to <laughs> beef up their political personas uh, for when David Cameron left. So ultimately, this was a proxy, a massive international mm-hmm. proxy referendum for the conservative leadership? Yep. That's basically it. Yes. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, uh, that's a good, that's a very, very well put, Adam. That's what we've you know, uh, as I say, 65 years of compromise and diplomacy for the egos of, you About. know, and some turf in the Conservative Party. It's it's absurd. But now we're stuck with this decision. What do mm-hmm. you what do you think will happen? Will will the EU try to expedite the process of untangling the UK from their obligations? Or is this going to be one of those two to five year processes? Well, it's a great question. So it's definitely in, to the extent that anything is in the EU's interest right now, it's in their interest to resolve this is to, for as, for as Britain to fare as badly as possible, <laughs> because then they don't want it to be an example to, you know, France and other places where the far right are saying, well, they want to have a referendum as well. So I think they will move to move quicker to initiate Article 50 than the Prime Minister, David Cameron, said that they would, which was not until after the new Conservative leader is picked. My understanding from reading the lawyers on this is that the European Union can't do that. They might begin informal processes, but the formal process can only begin when a member state initiates the process to leave. In terms of the negotiation itself, I mean, it took, uh, I think it was... Was it 
uh, Iceland, there was a country that took three years to leave and they had one, you know, export, which was fish. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think it'll, it's going to be, it's the greatest legal challenge in the history of the world to unpack all of this. And, um, yeah, the UK currently has, I think, 42 trade negotiators. It's going to need hundreds, if not thousands, and they're in no way ready. So some people in the Leave campaign wanted to stay in the single market. They just didn't want to be members of the European Union, but some don't at all. So now you've got this group that was bound by this common goal, or at least professed goal, of getting the UK out of the EU, but now they've splintered entirely. Mm -hmm. So tough tough to see, but I see on Twitter today this new hashtag that says out means out. And I think, unfortunately, we're going to see a lot of that of people who say, no, we want to change and we want to change right now, but it's going to take many years, if not decades, to unravel all this. Do you see this as kind of a warning for folks in the United States who have a, a presidential election coming up in November? Is is what happened in the UK analogous to what could happen in the US, in your opinion? I totally agree. I think it's a real wake-up call to the complacency of, well, surely people can't think this, you know. Yeah. I hear this a lot. Surely people don't. I mean, people are so angry, and I think that anger is really underestimated. And again, the conflation of issues. So I was talking to, I've been trying to talk to people on the street, and I talked to a person on the way here who said that he voted to leave the European Union because Starbucks doesn't pay tax in the UK. I mean, it has nothing. It has nothing to do. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I, and the number one, I think, Googled, term or search term in the UK this weekend was what is the EU? Yeah. You know, not not you know, not what does it mean to leave? But I, I think it's really hard to for people who, you know, I consume news obsessively, it's hard for me to get in the headspace of somebody who's feels so alienated and many times legitimately so. So I think that complacency is is uh, I think this is a massive wake up call. A massive, massive wake up call and, you know, in Oxford, the night of the vote, I have a South African friend and we were at a party and some people came in who said they hadn't voted and the polls hadn't closed yet. And he made them put down their drinks and go and took them to vote and would not leave until they did. <laughs> and I remember thinking, boy, you know, maybe that's a bit. But he, you know, when people have seen the consequences, I think they take it really seriously. And I think this should be a, a wake up call for all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think it means also that the the Democrats are going to have to work really hard to define the ballot question, because as mm -hmm. you said, it can't be about where Starbucks pays its taxes. It has to be about, you know, a That's vision, right. a vision for the future of the United States. And, and in this case, I, I guess a vision for the future of the United Kingdom. Absolutely. Very well put. I think that's exactly right. And one of the dangers, and I think this is a danger for Hillary Clinton, one of the dangers for the Remain side is they were the status quo. And it's a lot harder. The people who vote to leave are much louder. Mm -hmm. And they were much more motivated, much more engaged. And the people had a much harder time making the case for, well, things are bad, but they could be so much worse. And the people voting to leave say, no, it probably couldn't. They didn't <laughs> feel like it could get any worse. And I think there's a definite peril to that in the U.S., and you're absolutely right, there's a real danger that those folks will be way more motivated. Mm -hmm, for sure. So you're probably going to stay in the United Kingdom, I'm guessing, at least while your studies are going on. Yeah, I'll finish uh, my thesis My thesis for sure, but it, it, it'll it be a massive hit to the universities in the U.K. I mean, the, the um, Leave campaign argued that they wanted to reduce European Union um, 
migration to increase Commonwealth migration. And indeed, this is one of the things I found really upsetting as a Canadian is the Leave campaign would say, well, we don't want Europe to be our ally. We want the Commonwealth to be our, you know, we want that to be our, hmm. um, our principal ally. And I don't, so people said to me, well, this is, this is great for you. And I'm, I don't think that's, that's true. But um, there was definitely that sense that that was who people, the many members of the Leave campaign, that's who they felt more aligned with. So there is indeed an argument that it'll be a lot easier for me to get a job. I'm skeptical about that just because it will hit universities so hard and my partner works on telescopes and telescopes are funded by the European Space Agency. Right. Uh, science is not, you know, does not have border. And the legal um, academics in the UK, it's one of the most funded areas with European um, money. Uh, so it's, it's uh, it'll be very tough times ahead for the for the university I'm at, the vice chancellor sent an email around saying, well, we've experienced, you know, tumultuous <laughs> times in the past. I'm sure we'll be okay. But I think she meant, you know, the, the reformation and the civil war. <laughs> it's not, yeah. a, not a great standard. So if I could just conclude by saying, I don't think we should be complacent in Canada either, even though that the, I don't think the inequality is stark. I don't think some of the underlying causes are stark, but I don't think we should, Forget that people can feel left behind and that when we believe in things, we have to make the arguments. Yeah. And um, I think it's just really important that we not assume this can't happen to us. A warning to heed, if ever there was one. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Expats. If there are any expats you think I should be speaking with, have them email me at info at expatspodcast.ca or send me an email yourself. And let's keep building this global network of Canadians living abroad. I've been your host, Adam Rosenhart. If you haven't already, please give the expats a rating and review on both the iTunes Store and Stitcher Radio. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch up again in a couple of weeks. Music